Where are the tallest sand dunes in North America? And how much is a smidgen? A smidgen is actually something that can be measured? Absolutely, it can. That's amazing. Do you have a little smidgen measuring tool? A smidgen of this and a smidgen. Well, answers to those and other questions coming up in this smidgen of (laughs) The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. Well, Marcia, as we begin our new year, I've got some leftover holiday questions to ask. <laughs> I got one, too. <laughs> and a vacation question. Where would you have to go to find the tallest sand dunes in North America? Would it be Michigan? No, it's not Michigan. Because I remember seeing some as we pulled in on a the big boat. The Seaside Resort of Michigan. No, where are the <laughs> tallest sand dunes of oh, North America? Well, California would be the California. first California, that would be an obvious place. No. But it's not. No, it isn't. Tell Marsha. It is in the seaside state of Colorado. <laughs> Can you believe that? Lose that voice, Bob. Yes, uh, the, the Great Sand Dunes National Park. That's the name of it. we got to go visit there sometime. Okay. It has the tallest sand dunes in North America with at least five more than 700 feet. Oh, my gosh. Wow. The Star Dune is 750 feet high. That's amazing. It's so large the National Park Service said it would take you five hours round trip to hike it. Really? And it's in Colorado. So how did those dunes come about? Well, that's my next question. How did they come about? Oh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> the dunes were formed when the large lakes that were once covering the region back in prehistoric times dried up, and they left a 30-square-mile oh. dune field in their wake. I'll be then. Today, the dunes are relatively stable with just a few inches of dry, movable sand. The rest of it, they just stay in place. Is there any water not anything left from that lake. It's just, you know, so, some so beach toys and things like that left over there from prehistoric inner times. Inner tubes? Yes. Inner tubes? Jet skis? Okay. Prehistoric jet skis? Yeah. <laughs> they were on bones, you know. So if you want real tall sand dunes, you don't go to Florida, you don't go to California, you go to Colorado. Yeah. Well, look at where do we go here at often up in Door County, White Dunes Park, right? Yeah, but it's on Lake Michigan. Yeah. This dune field is in a valley between two mountain ranges and there's only a small, shallow Midno Creek that's right next to it. So there's a beach there, but the dunes rest on huge underground aquifers. So there's water that goes miles deep, and there's water in the base of the sand dunes that keeps them there. But opposing winds batter these uh, sand dunes from both sides. They blow sand from the mountains onto the sand that's already there and keep the dune size consistent. And it's a vacation place. The National Park Service lets you walk all over it. You can climb them and everything else. It's uh, in a very unusual setting, but it is a paradise of sorts. That is a weird. Okay, smidgen, Bob. A smidgen. A smidgen is going to be a tiny little thing. Tiny. Is there some kind of an instrument that measures a smidgen? Yes. Is it a microscope? No. Is it a, uh, a tape measure? Uh, I don't know. A uh, yardstick? No, it's uh, Tweezers? It. Let me tell you. Tell me about a smidgen. In cooking, which I don't do very well, as we can tell from the burn marks on my <laughs> arm here. <laughs> Happy holidays. <laughs> Marsha's in the kitchen. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, a dash, a pinch, and a smidgen are often used in recipes, meaning a little. But all those terms actually have real measurements uh, associated with them. A dash is 
an eighth of a teaspoon. A pinch is a sixteenth of a teaspoon. Wow. And a smidgen is one thirty-second of a teaspoon. How can you actually grab that? Well, you can't. I would. I would. I just uh, use my fingers and uh, I use a smidge. That's pretty cool, though. So you can actually empirically measure what a smidgen yeah. is. Yeah. One thirty-second of a teaspoon. So when you say a smidge. Is that 164th instead of 132nd? Is it like, (laughs) smidge is just a half of a smidgen. (laughs) Jesus. Oh, where do you find these things, Marcia? Just give me a smidge of wine. (laughs) Not. (laughs) Okay, I've got some holiday questions left over, kind of fun. Did you know that Santa's reindeer had other names? Ralph, Harry, Bob. Well, kind of like that. And they were given to them by another famous author. Now, we think of... Dasher and Dancer, Prancer and Vixen. That was from uh, what? Night Before Christmas. Yeah, Clement Moore, right? Clement Moore. Isn't that what I call you, a prancer? Yes, you do. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) I snorted. Sorry. (laughs) Well, L. Frank Baum, the author best known for The Wizard of Oz, in 1902 wrote The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. Did you know this? I didn't. But I have the names of the reindeer. Okay, let's hear it. New reindeer names, (laughs) because the old ones were named in the 1830s. Actually, these are kind of cute. What year is this? 1902. Okay. L. Frank Baum. Okay. Flossie, Glossy, <laughs> Racer, Pacer, <laughs> Fearless, Peerless, Ready and Steady. Oh, God. Feckless and Speckless. Oh, I sense a, uh, a pattern here. <laughs> yeah. Names that never stuck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Isn't that funny? Yeah. But yeah, those are the reindeer names, the alternate he, reindeer names. Why did he try to do that? I don't know. Maybe he was a little bit of an egotist. And yeah, he thought, I think that's I it. I can name my own reindeer. Yeah. Kids all over the world aren't going to uh, redo their thinking, are they? That's right. All right. Okay, Bob, ready? Uh-huh. Okay, say if you go from scrawny to buff. Okay, like me. Yeah, <laughs> got it. Or backwards. <laughs> what? Why do we say, Bob, they've been whipped into shape? I always thought it had to do with like a whip cream, whipping cream. You know, you whip stuff up with in the kitchen, you know? Yeah. Change well, its form. Oh, that form. makes something, yeah, sure. with a whisk or a egg beater or something. Yeah, so you take an egg beater to a person yeah. and you beat them into shape. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got the last part right. During ancient Olympics, athletes were expected to go into training 10 months before the start of the Games. The last month was spent at the site of the games, and regardless of the weather or your bodily injuries, you went on a strict diet, and without shoes, shorts, no shorts, (laughs) or the right to complain, whenever they faltered while they were practicing, they were whipped by their trainers. Oh, no! These Olympians were literally whipped into shape. Jeez, that's just oh, horrible. I'd... So much for the uh, competitive spirit of people yeah. who just want to get ahead. Yeah. I... Holy cow. So that's in ancient Greece. Yeah. I'll be darned. All right, I have another leftover holiday question here. It's kind okay. of fun. What country has a special lottery drawing just for Christmas? Really? Yes. China, Italy, Spain, or Norway. One of those countries has a lottery during the holidays. Norway. Norway. No. <laughs> A little south. Such glee. What were the other ones? Spain, Italy, China. Okay, any of those. I'll say Italy. Spain. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, it's Spain. Spain's favorite holiday tradition. One is Loteria de Navidad, Uh or the Christmas Lottery. Reportedly, about 75% of the country's population purchases a lottery ticket for the drawing. And locals have named it El Gordo, the fat one. (laughs) 
<laughs> because it's the largest annual lottery in Spain. So every December 22nd, families across the country gather around their Christmas tree. Uh-huh. No, they gather around their televisions to watch the results of the lottery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the payout is usually about 2 billion euros, about 2.1 billion US dollars. So billion dollars? Billion, 2.1 billion total. Oh my god. So there's quite a merry Christmas indeed for lucky for somebody. winners. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know what I do every Christmas? I put a lottery ticket in everybody's stocking just in case they're disappointed with their presents. There's always a chance. <laughs> something something bigger will maybe happen. Maybe there's something out there. Maybe you'll get $2. <laughs> yeah, that's all we've ever won. And one more holiday question. What's okay. the very first song played in space. It was religious, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. No, what was and it, it wasn't okay. a recording. That's the little twist. Somebody sang it? Somebody sang it. The very first song played in space was actually sung in space, and it was in 1965. Now, you probably don't know the names of the astronauts, so I'll tell you who it was. <laughs> the performers were Tom Stafford and Wally Schirra, and the date was December 16, 1965. The crew claimed to see an unidentified object while in orbit. Oh, Santa. Then they began playing jingle bells using a harmonica and bells that they'd snuck aboard. Oh, really? How yeah. cool is that? So Jingle Bells was the first song played by humans in space, and the artists were two astronauts, um, Tom Stafford and Wally Schirra. That's a great little tidbit. So here's a Christmas factoid. The United States Post Office gives Santa his own address. It's 123 Elf Road, North Pole, 8888. <laughs> That's, he's got a zip code and everything. Wow. And Canada has a postal code for the North Pole, and it is... H-O-H-O-H-O. <laughs> oh, ho, ho, ho. Oh, that's great. Isn't that cute? I think I read that somewhere. That's a great one. That's funny. All right, Bob. What is graphene? Graphene? Uh-huh. G-R-A-P-H-E-N-E. Graphene. Graph means writing or something to do with writing. Because of the... Graph. Fight. Right. Graphite. Correct. Graphene is... is uh, uh, it's a fear of graphite. <laughs> That's no, a good I, one. That's I a good one. No, it oh, no, this is fascinating. Uh, it's believed to be the strongest, lightest, and most electrically conductive substance on Earth. Hmm. Check this. Graphene is 200 times stronger than steel by weight. Wow. It's 1,000 times lighter than paper. This is an actual substance. Yeah, it's 98% transparent. It conducts electricity better than any known material at room temperature. It can convert light at any wavelength into current. And last but not least, graphene is made from carbon, the most abundant element in the universe. Do we use this stuff? Well, that's just it. They're trying to figure out something. So graphene was discovered in 2004 by two scientists from the University of Manchester. Oh, so this is recent. I didn't know that. 2004. Okay. They wanted to create a carbon substance less than an atom thick. Wow. And so they put sticky tape on top of bits of graphite, okay, you know, like in your pencil, and then they peeled off the tape, leaving flakes on the tape. Then they folded the tape in half, and they stuck the flakes back onto the top, and split them again. They kept folding it 10, 20 times. They kept folding sticky tape onto the flakes of graphite. And long story short, they isolated a single sheet of carbon and created a brand new material called graphene. 
and both of them won a Nobel Prize in physics for it. Wow. And this is just two scientists with some cellophane tape having some fun one (laughs) day. Yeah, and graphite. That's the fun of it all. (laughs) Scotch tape and a pencil. Look, imagine the things you can figure out. Well, this is inspiration to children everywhere. It is. It is. Hey, speaking of inspiration, this is an inspirational story. This is history, okay? Sure. I love it. How did the daughter of Catherine I of Russia get around the rule that young ladies of the royal court should never be drunk. Oh, dear. What a terrible rule. So how did she get around that? Yeah. Well, she drank alone. Well, they did something. This is back in 1727. Tell me. Okay, well, the rule back then in the Russian court was that young men of the court could get drunk, but they had to wait until after 9 o'clock. So ladies couldn't get drunk anytime. So Catherine's daughter and her girlfriends held transvestite balls. <laughs> they dressed as men and drank to their hearts. Content. Exactly. That's my kind Posing of Posing as young men and circumventing the rules. So this is this is like that uh, series that's on uh, Netflix yeah. about Catherine the Great. So it was a quite ribald time back then. Isn't that funny? It is. Wow. That is crazy. Isn't that crazy I funny? Love, I love the workaround. It is a workaround. It's a hack. <laughs> Speaking of workaround, let's take a break. And then we'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp. We do this for the Cedarburg Public Library every week. We have taken a couple of weeks off here over the holidays, but we're back in fighting shape. Indeed. After a bout with COVID. That was you. Oh, dear. (laughs) I got mine last New Year's. Yes, you did. (laughs) Seems like we spaced these things. We did from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Yeah. We both had it. So not unusual, I guess, anymore. Another history question for you. Yes, dear. You look back at the uh, Christopher Columbus. We always think about how his voyage was funded by Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Spain. Remember, he went to all the monarchs of Europe and tried to get somebody to fund him. What was the return on the royal investment in Columbus's voyage Uh, to the world? In terms of gold and how much it was worth. Yeah. How do you want the answer? If you look at it in terms of dollars spent and the amount of gold that came back to the old world, it Uh was a substantial amount. How much was it, do you think? That they made on this trip. And this is their dollars, not our dollars. Yeah. I'll say $5 million. Well, it was about that. Yeah. uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, they invested $6,000. Oh, and got $5 million back. And they got $1.7 million back. Well, see now. That was over a century or so. Two million. After a century, Spain had a return of nearly $2 million in gold. So that took a long time to have a return on investment. But then, of course, Spain got gold and silver like crazy over the years. Okay, what's our ROI here, Columbus? (laughs) (laughs) So again, after one century, Spain had a return of nearly $2 million in gold, and then it went up from there. And that's according to the Isaac Asimov Book of Facts. All right. Okay, Bob, when and or where were pants or trousers prohibited from being worn? Where, where were they prohibited from being worn? Uh-huh. Well, I remember in school they were prohibited. <laughs> Girls couldn't wear pants oh, that's or trousers right. when that's I was right. going no, to high school. No. High school? Yeah, I guess we didn't either. No, you had yeah. to wear some kind of a skirt. Yeah. Women always had to or wear dress. skirts. Or dress. right. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So that was one. But that's not what you're talking about. No, I'm talking about guys. This is in the United Anybody. States. No. No? No. Where was it? Ancient Rome. <laughs> oh, really? There's the ancient no, Rome. No trousers. No, what did they wear? Togas and... Togas and uh, what were those other things? Togas and tunics. Yeah. And pants were strictly for military guys. Oh, is that right? It was a, So it was a military uniform. Yeah, it was... I'll be uh, darned. Yeah. 
The powers that be issued edicts against trouser wearing. Many Romans considered the foreign garments of pants to be aggressive and uncouth. (laughs) The 4th century ban prohibited civilians from donning pants, and doing so meant risking permanent exile. Wow, just because you wore pants. Yeah, yeah. They became a regular part of Roman wear and court clothing during the 5th and 6th centuries. Took that long. No pants in the 4th century. (laughs) No pants for you. No pants for you. (laughs) Okay, Marcia, I have another geographical question. I know this is your favorite topic. Indeed. So look at the United States. I am. Think of the time zones. Mm -hmm. Which time zone touches the most U.S. states? Is it the Pacific, the Eastern, the Central, or the Mountain? Central. Central. No? Eastern. Eastern. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I you, <laughs> you didn't want to give it to I me, wanted to, I thought you'd try another one. Yeah. No. Eastern time zone includes 23 states yeah. plus the District of Columbia, So, and it covers the largest yeah. percent of the U.S. population. Yeah. But central time comes in a close second. It touches 20 states and encompasses the most land area. I was going to say, the states are so much bigger. So combined, the eastern and central time zones touch 43 states. Wow. But... Here's where it gets complicated. They don't touch the entirety of those states because many states straddle two time zones in the central time zone. Yeah. For example, only half the states fall entirely within that zone. The other half have parts in the eastern or the mountain zones. Okay. Federal law recognizes nine official time zones. Six of them cover the 50 states. The other cover territories, U.S. territories. Sticking to states, Bob, which you love. Okay. Why is Colorado called the Centennial State? Because it came into the Union in seven. Let's see, eighteen. Is it eighteen eighty-seven? No. Eighteen eighty-three. Think about it. Eighteen seventy-six. That's it. Okay, Good so it's the centennial you. of the. So it's not the centennial of the country, but it's the centennial of the Declaration of Independence. Okay. Correct. Gotcha. Correct. And exactly one hundred years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, they became known as the Centennial State. Yeah. So there you go, Bob. Okay, one more state question. Oh, jeez. In what state is the oldest continuously used public building in the United States? St. Augustine? No, not St. Augustine. There is another city that holds that distinction. Uh, Santa Fe? Santa Fe, yeah. In Santa Fe, their Palace of Governors, that was built in the 1600s when New Mexico was still a Spanish territory in 1609. Okay. It was called New Mexico then. So it's still being used functionally, not like in St. Augustine where we went, that fort, that's more like a tourist thing, right? Yeah, Yeah, the Palace of Governors in Santa Fe. It was the capital until 1885, but it's a museum, the Museum of New Mexico. Okay. Gotcha. Ready? Yes. Where was the water location for the movie Titanic? Uh, That was a big tank they built down in Mexico. Well, aren't you... Huge. It was the biggest tank ever built. Just take it away from me. You're right. He built a smaller one for his new movie, Avatar. Avatar, yeah. Uh, But that was a smaller tank. But they had a massive tank they did for the uh, Titanic. Yeah. Yeah. According to the technical journal JOM, the tank built for the film, it was the largest shooting tank in the world, holding how many millions gallons of water? I don't know. 17. 17 million gallons of water. Can you imagine that? Yep. The Titanic model, which was 883 feet long, or one-sixth of a mile, was 90% 
to scale and fit in here and look like it was Holy floating. Holy cow. And uh, it weighed 46,328 tons, the model. The ship. The Titanic model. And Man. They, so they needed 17 uh, million gallons of salt water. That's amazing. Okay, Bob, quickie. Yeah. What fruit is radioactive? <laughs> A fruit that's radioactive? Yeah, you got a problem with that? Uh, something we both eat. It, this isn't something that glows in the dark or anything, no, is no, it? No, no, no. Something we both eat. It's radioactive. Would mm-hmm. it be like raisins? No. Okay, what fruit is it's, radioactive? It's your namesake, Bob. Your namesake. Robert? Bob? <laughs> banana Bob. Oh, it's a banana. <laughs> Bananas are radioactive? Just a slight, but yes. I didn't yes, know that. That's because of uh, the potassium in them. Wow. Yeah, and they decay. And apparently it comes up with an isotope called K40. And when that spontaneously decays, it releases beta and gamma radiation. The amount is harmless in one banana, but a truckload of bananas has been known to fool radiation detectors. Oh, my God. Yeah, designed to sniff out uh, nuclear weapons. <laughs> is that is that a truck with nuclear waste, or is that a bunch of bananas <laughs> going by? Exactly. They even, in fact, <laughs> there's even an informal radiation measurement named the banana equivalent dose, oh, BED, bed. Is, oh, that's hilarious. Isn't it? Oh, my goodness. You know what country grows the most bananas? I think it's El Salvador or... Nope. What is it? India. Oh, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have guessed that I either. I thought they were all from Latin America. Yeah. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Whoa. They produce more than 25% of the world bananas. In India? Yeah. I had no idea. You know how many species of bananas there are? No, I don't, Marcia. Take a guess. Jeez. <laughs> Am I full of it today? You are full of bananas. <laughs> you are full of appeal. Uh, I would say 12. 1,000. 1,000 different species of bananas. Yeah, think about that. Okay, Marsha, that was a good science question. Yes. I have a science question. All right. What is archaeomagnetism? Let me think. Archaeo? How do you spell archaeo? A-R-C-H-E-O, magnetism. All right. It's the magnetic force emanated from the St. Louis arches. It's magnetic, mm-hmm. yes. Archaeo. Archaeology. <laughs> Archaeology. Okay. So if it's archaeology and magnetism, yeah. what is it? It's a uh, it's a handsome guy they dug up from uh, <laughs> okay, a thousand never, years let ago. Let me go through. Let me give the answer here. Thank you. It's a new dating method for ancient artifacts. This has just been developed by Jof Wagnin, who is a doctoral candidate at Tel Aviv University in the last year or so, and the Hebrew University at Jerusalem, and it's helping archaeologists refine the history of the Holy Lands because they can use the Earth's magnetic record yeah. because there's a record. I didn't know the Earth's magnetic field moves around, and the Earth's geomagnetic records are baked into objects. Baked. Turns out when things were burned during massive biblical battles, they had yeah. these ones you read about in the Bible. They actually did. They set fire to cities, and the ancient ceramics or mud bricks were heated to such a high temperature that the magnetic orientation of the Earth's magnetic field was baked into the stone for all time. So they know that this magnetic field has traveled about, and they can pinpoint what time various events happened. So instead of burned bricks and pottery shards being 
you know, damaged relics of the past, they actually maintain a superior clock inside. Okay. So it uh, basically they uh, they've compared various sites and they can decide when the Battle of that's, Jericho was and other yeah, things. That's very cool, and it makes sense too. So We're, it's like a compass, a historical compass. I, I see. Historical okay. compass. Well, we seem to be rolling on the same avenues here. Here's a science question. Okay, another science question. Who is the only person? to win two Nobel Prizes in two different sciences. The only person who won two Nobel Prizes in two different sciences. Is this a very famous named person? It's not Einstein. No. Is it Madame Curie? It is. Okay. Bravo. Of her many distinctions, Madame Curie, this might be the most impressive. She shared the physics prize with her husband, Pierre and Henri Becquerel in 1903 and had the chemistry prize all to herself in 1911. Wow. Her 1903 prize was the first one by a woman. But I'll give you a factoid on uh, Madame Curie. Nearly a century after her death, her papers are still radioactive. No kidding. (laughs) And will be for another 1,500 years. Oh, my God. The pioneering scientists initially had no way of knowing just how dangerous her research on radioactivity, a word she and her husband coined, uh, truly was. She walked around her lab with radioactive elements in her pockets and stored them out in the open in part because she really enjoyed how they looked like fairy lights. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and wow. one more thing on her. For safety reasons, France's National Library stores all her notebooks in lead-lined boxes. Good Lord! And anyone wishing to view her manuscripts must sign a waiver and wear protective gear. Wow. After all these years, yeah. after more than a century. Yeah. yeah. That so is impressive. It, uh, that uh, her papers for another 1,500 years... <laughs> will be radioactive. That's It's hard to imagine fathom. that, isn't yeah, it? It is. it is hard to it fathom is. that. Okay, Marsha, a couple last questions here. Okay. How big are video games? How big is the video game industry? And I'm going to ask you that because if you're not a player, it's kind of an underground economy. Modern Warfare 2. This is another in the Call of Duty video game franchise. How much do you think it made in its first 10 days? In terms of money? It was launched in October 28th, 2022. How much it made in, in the first 10 days. In the first 10 days. This is a video game. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I've comprehended everything now. And the answer is $1 billion. I was going to do it like, uh, uh, what's his name now? Can you believe One that? $1 billion. $1 billion. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, according to the New York Times. After it was released October 28th, in 10 days, it made over a billion. How many things make a billion dollars in 10 days? I know somebody who can lose a billion dollars. Oh, yes. <laughs> We've been reading about him. Anyway, uh, Microsoft wants to buy Activision Blizzard, which is the company that makes it. They also make Overwatch, Warcraft, and Candy Crush for $68 billion. Wow, Candy Crush. Well, now we're talking. <laughs> I do like that one. This shows you how big uh, entertainment money goes. Now, when Disney bought Marvel, that was a big deal years ago uh, when they bought the Marvel Company. Mm-hmm. They paid $4 billion for that. And then they bought the Star Wars franchise yeah. from George Lucas. That was yeah. $8 billion. But here is a video game ten that days. made a billion in 10 days. And the company, Microsoft's trying to buy for $68 billion. Jeez. Wow. Okay, and I had one more for you. Mm-hmm. We all know actors sometimes go to great extremes to prepare for film roles, but how much extra weight did actor Brendan Fraser recently add for his role in The Whale. I think I saw a picture of him. Yeah. 
Uh, it's not all due to diet, thank God. He did gain weight. Yeah, 50 pounds. But prosthetics as well. Yeah. Okay, so he gained weight for the role, but the weight and the prosthetics added as much as 300 additional oh, pounds three. to his frame. Imagine being weighed down with 300 more pounds Extra of pounds. weight. No. Artificial no. or real. That's that's really committing to the role. Yeah, <laughs> as they say. So the film is Darren Aronsky's film, The Whale. All right. I'll wrap it up with a quote. May all your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to start the new year. And that's it for this episode. Join us again next time when we return with more facts, figures, quotes, and information for The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.